hurricanes, hailstorms, tornadoes, and wildfires. These are just some of the weather hazards that displace families and disrupt lives. Many of us are familiar with the scenes of devastation these hazards cause, and the recovery process for affected communities can take months, even years. In the most extreme circumstances, some may never be whole again. This may prompt many of you to ask, what's being done to reduce the risks associated with these hazards? To answer this question, the Insurance Institute for Business and Home Safety presents the Disaster Discussions Podcast. Join me, your host, Armand Brody, as I sit down with professionals in the insurance, science, construction, and resiliency industries who will help us explore the intersection of these hazards with the built environment. We'll bring you in-depth conversations with experts from across the country and highlight how science is engineering real-world solutions for home and business owners to create safer, more resilient communities. Join us for these discussions every month. And to make sure you don't miss an episode, go subscribe to the Disaster Discussions podcast on your favorite podcast app. We also invite you to engage with us on social media to ask your questions, share your thoughts, and to learn more about the IBHS mission. Welcome to Disaster Discussions, a podcast from the Insurance Institute for Business and Home Safety. This podcast will feature science, insurance, and building industry experts who will help us explore the intersection of weather-related hazards with the built environment, as well as steps being taken to prevent future devastation. Our first guest is Dr. Sarah Kapnick, Chief Scientist with the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. We'll discuss Dr. Kapnick's years of experience at the intersection of climate science and economics and outline climate change's role in the extreme weather events we've seen in the last few years. We'll also delve into how NOAA is helping businesses and communities become more resilient. Dr. Kapnick, you are our very first guest on the Disaster Discussions podcast, and we thank you for being with us. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited to be here. This is such an honor for us. We're so excited. And if you don't mind, we're just going to dive straight in. Let's do it. All right. So, so let's sort of start way back uh, at your, uh, your days in Illinois. How did you get involved in science? Was it a childhood love of yours? Did, did you meet it later on? How did that, how did that happen? I always loved math and science um, <laughs> ever since I was a little kid. Um, and as a kid, I didn't really know about NOAA other than National Weather Service and the weather forecast that we put out. So I didn't even know that a job like the one that I have now existed. Um, if I had, I probably would have wanted this job. <laughs> but when I was a kid, I thought, you're really good at math and science and you go to college and then you major in math or you go into business or you go into medicine. Um, and so that's kind of how I started. I was focused on math. Um, but then I found a love of applying math to applied problems like climate science and finance. And so then I branched out and explored other things. Can you touch a little bit more on your finance background? It's pretty extensive. Can we talk a little bit about that? Yes. So my undergraduate was in theoretical mathematics and a certificate in finance because I was really interested. I got really interested in applying mathematical techniques and my mathematical knowledge of solving problems to real world scenarios. So I got interested in climate science and I also got interested in finance. And so out of college, I tried to figure out how I could blend the two. I wanted to blend my interest in climate and my interest in finance. Um, so I did that by first going um, to an investment bank and covering the insurance and reinsurance industries. 
um, covering them from uh, from corporate finance, so mergers and acquisitions and their debt um, or securities offerings, but also I ventured into catastrophe bonds, catastrophe bonds related to hurricanes and flooding and extreme winds. Um, and so I did that for a few years, um, but ultimately then decided to go back into science and then spent a long time in science, um, doing my PhD, working in a startup, working in a nonprofit, then doing fundamental scientific research at NOAA. Um, and before coming in as NOAA's chief scientist recently, I was working for a little over a year at JP Morgan as their senior climate scientist, again, applying my scientific knowledge to finance. And so I've gone in between these different spaces um, because ultimately my interest is at the intersection fundamentally in climate risk. How do we understand the risks that climate, change, climate poses today and into the future with climate change? So you took the red and the blue and you made purple, basically. Just blended everything that you love together to make this unique passion that you have. Yeah. Um, when, I, when I was coming out of college almost 20 years ago, jobs that connected the two didn't exist. Um, but they're emerging and they're growing tremendously. Um, and it's the insurance industry is really focused on it. Um, built environment. Um, everyone is now focused in a completely different way on understanding all this information. So let's talk about your role now as chief scientist with NOAA. You were recently appointed, congratulations. Just the third woman to serve uh, in this role, uh, rare air for you. What are your responsibilities? Sort of lay out what you do and what your role is with, with NOAA. So I help um, provide the scientific um, expertise and direction on our policy and technology science development. Um, that's like statement. Um, so it's, I bring in my scientific expertise to help on all aspects of the agency with, with that under its charge. So it relates first and foremost, very importantly, scientific integrity. People need to trust the data, the services, the products that we produce, believe them, listen to them, because ultimately our mission is to protect lives and property. And so people need to trust us. So it's creating scientific integrity within the agency. And upholding that. But then beyond that, it's advising, uh, providing advice on the policies that we're developing and that we use. So it's um, making sure that we're developing science to meet the challenges of the future. So reviewing our scientific programs um, so we can do that. Then it's um, one of my other priorities relates to working with the private sector, making sure that the information that we are producing is actually getting to the hands of users. Because that's how we really... Um, realize that value of the data and information that we produce is it's actually being used by decision makers. Another piece of my priorities is communication. What does NOAA do? How do we do it? What are the exciting new scientific advances that we've made? Making sure that the public, um, be that individuals, be that companies, be that other people in policy making decisions, they have access to that information and then they can use it to make informed decisions. You mentioned the private sector. How does the private sector view climate risk? Um, you know, 20 years ago when I was first working on Wall Street, it was really just the insurance industry and reinsurance industry that were looking at climate risk. They were looking at really what is today's risk and risk within portfolios that they were managing that might have like a one to five year horizon at most to understand what is the likelihood that an extreme windstorm happens or a drought or a flood or a hurricane. 
Um, but now, today, there's a realization that climate change um, is happening and it's happening at a more rapid pace. And so our tools, our past tools for assessing likelihoods of events today for policies um, and products is insufficient. There needs to be a rethinking of how you do those types of risk analyses and how you understand what exposures are due to climate change. And so today, there's a number of new products and services that are starting to be developed off of data from agencies like NOAA, where we are producing the important climate information to make those decisions. So we observe climate and we have informational records on the past, but then we also provide predictions over a couple months or a couple years or a couple decades out. And then we also provide projections many decades out. What does the future hold? And using all that information, you can make an assessment about where the world is headed. For our audience, I want to sort of serve up some numbers here. At IBHS, we research how weather affects the built environment. So we're paying attention to what's happening, as as are you and your folks at NOAA. We're paying attention to the increase in extreme weather events due to climate change. Here are some numbers. Last year was the second costliest year for billion-dollar disasters, with 20 of them adding to a total cost of more than $152 billion. The cost of these disasters is high and getting higher. How are these astronomical costs driving actions within the finance industry? With this recognition that billion dollar disasters um, are growing, the major disasters, the cost of insured but also uninsured risk due to extreme events is growing, is leading to people realizing that they need to plan for it. So in the insurance reinsurance industry, it's having better tools, better data to be able to quantify what that risk is today and how it's evolving over time. So as you plan for it, you're um, planning for this evolving risk. Um, so with that number that you threw out, this the second most costly year was last year. You know, In the 1980s, it was only, um, in today's dollars, it was roughly $20 billion a year in disasters. And then last year, it was 100, over $150 billion. So it is growing tremendously in terms of the amount of disasters that are taking place. And so if you just look at historical data to try and assess what your current risk or exposures are, you're going to miss um, this growth and the impact that um, these events are happening, the increase in magnitude, increase in frequency of these events. And so as a result, you misprice the risk, you misprice um, the likelihood of these events happening. And so that is why um, that particular project comes from NOAA's billion dollar disaster project. We've been keeping records of that. Um, it's critical to be able to understand changes in exposure. Um, and even recently in the last month, we even started adding census information so we can provide that disaster information in the United States, also on a county level, as well as understanding social vulnerabilities of where those disasters are happening. So we're even parsing it further and further so you can understand um, where those disasters are happening, where they're having the impact, and then also what the social vulnerabilities in those locations are. You referenced the insurance industry a little bit ago, and obviously that's um, an area that IBHS is always addressing the issue of resilience. 
let's talk about how Noah a little bit more how Noah is engaging with the insurance industry to foster increased results yeah we've been having um, listening sessions and webinars recently in response to questions from the insurance industry asking for access to information understanding where the current state of cutting-edge research is and where it's going as well as um, better help finding NOAA products and services that they can use in the insurance industry. Um, so like almost every day I'm talking to members of the insurance industry, um, discussing how they're doing their modeling and answering questions that they have um, with regards to NOAA data products and services. Um, and we're pulling together these, this webinar series that we're having every two months now on different topics, on different perils of interest to the industry. Um, to be able to make sure that we're having a knowledge exchange, that we're explaining where is the state of the science and where are we headed. And then we also hear from the industry about what they're seeing, information, we answer questions, but then we also get some feedback. So the future development of the science and products can take the, that feedback into account from what we're also hearing from the industry. How would you assess where the progress has been made so far in the few months that you've been chief science? Um, I'm very excited about the conversations that we're having. When, you know, when I was first in the industry about 20 years ago when I entered, um, these types of conversations were not happening at all. There was this expectation that climate change was something in the future that you would deal with in the future that that wasn't something you need to worry about in your writing of risk, of risk and products today. Um, so the conversation has dramatically evolved. Um, but there's also a greater sense of urgency now um, because it's not just something that is theoretical in the science and the physical science. People are also seeing it in their underwriting of products. And so they're trying to get a handle on what is the risk in certain places. And so that's why more information, more data is critical to be able to quantify what those risks are and be able to do that analysis. Because if that information isn't there, there's a fear of being unable to price the risk. And when you can't price the risk, that either leads to really high prices in insurance or it leads to insurers exiting the market. And so having as much information as you can to make those assessments is really critical for the development of those products. Here at IBHS, we've done some things and implemented some products as well. We have our, our online learning course where we explain Hurricane 101, basically Wildfire 101. It sounds like some of those same concepts are being implemented at NOAA. Can you touch just a little bit more on what is being done to give that data uh, to your audiences who need that data and implement it as they do? Okay. So those webinars we're having are on topics, and they'll discuss where to find specific data sets, but then also um, discussing this the nature and current status of our understanding of certain perils and where the research is headed so people can have an idea of like, what is the roadmap of development of science in this space and what is the uncertainty today um, in terms of data we have different platforms where data can be downloaded right now um, specific to certain types of perils so for heat there's heat.gov um, for drought there's drought.gov where you can find information and download the historical information but also the um, forecast from the weather, but also seasonal outlooks, and then also get that climate change information. We also, there's also recently um, launched, um, a, which was across federal agencies, uh, camera, which is resilience.climate.gov, where there's also all a collection of all the climate information across the United States, across various agencies, um, where information can also be downloaded. Um, 
And mo many of these platforms are done um, with uh, ESRI and their mapping uh, mapping technology that people are many people in the industry are used to using. Um, but we're also pushing forward with our AI Institute at NOAA to make sure that our data is AI uh, machine learning ready, that we're up also upholding other standards of data products um, and create, creating new platforms to download the data in a different way. For those more sophisticated users that are using Python or Jupyter Notebooks and other um, other techniques um, beyond these mapping softwares. And so we're trying to make sure that we're putting the data out there in these different formats that are used in industry and local communities so people can uptake it and use it. Um, we also traditionally have the data at uh, National Center for Environmental Information as well as on the cloud with um, Amazon and Google and different cloud providers. Um, but that is in the more raw typical scientific or more typical scientific forms that aren't necessarily used in industry. So it sounds like people are getting a hold of the data and you're finding and, and really creating new ways for your data to be uh, accessed, accessed, which is which is really a good thing. Yeah, I like to say that um, you know the data only has value once it gets used. So we can create it. And we can put it out there, but if people don't find it and they don't use it, or if it's in a format that they can't use, that true value will never be unlocked to that data. And so it's really critical that we not only create it, make it open, make it available, but then we also make sure that we're doing so in a way that allows it to be accessible. So it can actually be taken up, um, in this case, by the private sector for use um, for building products. So basically, when it comes to the federal, the private sector, how do we need to get this data implemented in that area? The, the data that is coming from NOAA. Okay. Um, so, so I think what you're asking me is, is are there gaps in how data is being, like is, is, is all data being used yes. that we have? And the answer is no. Yes, but I, I need, okay, okay. Um, and uh, key, you know, exciting areas that are starting to happen is trying to understand how to use um, for example, in fisheries, our understanding of uh, pH and of temperature of um, different micronutrients in the water, having all that information and then having sensors to make sure that aquaculture is um, being effectively managed to be able to increase productivity in aquaculture. Um, so that's anything that you're growing in the ocean. Um, there are other examples of um, new changing resiliency plans when you have an extreme heat day, um, having effective resiliency plans for companies um, on extreme heat days of what exactly do you need to do? Do you change people's hours that they're working outside? Do you change their shifts? Um, how do you implement that? When do you implement that? How far in advance from the forecast or like when it's actually, when events are actually happening? So there's a number of ways that the data that we have can start being developed and used either in operations, um, which are the two examples that I just gave you, or also in risk management planning. Um, and it's a matter of making those plans and figuring out how to integrate the information in. Um, like recently I was talking to another, to a, a bank uh, sustainability officer and she was asking me questions about sea level rise. Um, and she goes, you know, I, I haven't included sea level rise into some of our analyses. Um, I don't even know where to start. I just assume it'll be like two feet in the future. 
actually showed our, our sea level rise viewer. We actually have a website where you can actually go and you can download and look and interact with where sea level rise is taking place in the United States. And so it's a matter of um, understanding that that data is out there and having a desire to figure out how to overlay that information of the physical climate system or biology to um, the built environment or operations of a company and then making plans from that. Dr. Kapnick, sort of give us a, six to 12 months from now, what work will Noah be doing and uh, what are you most excited about looking ahead to the future here? I'm really excited over the next year, how our implementation of the Inflation Reduction Act. There's funding in there for a new Hurricane Hunter, for a better understanding and prediction of hurricanes, of track and magnitude strength. Um, then we also have funding, a significant amount of funding for coastal resilience, building up coastal resilience and adaptation projects. So our coasts, which are salty coasts, but also the Great Lakes region, are built and prepared um, for climate change as well as well as making sure that there's information delivery and services to building a climate ready nation. A nation is um, preparing for climate change and being able to use all the information and data and products and services that we produce here at NOAA to be able to implement adaptation resiliency plans and then also try to advance commerce, to advance commerce towards this more climate ready nation. For the ordinary Joe, let's say, there's this belief that uh, hazard risk and climate change, it's sort of this theory, but it, it's not real to me. It's not real in my experience for Joe Blow and any town, any state. What are we doing to really change that narrative and change that idea and, and help people understand that hazard risk and climate risk, they're real and they can happen anywhere? Yeah, sometimes when I start talking about climate change and risk and probabilities and distribution functions, it starts sounding so technical and people's eyes glaze over. But fundamentally, it's really important that we communicate the importance of understanding what the future holds. So climate change science allows us to have an idea of very, li very likely scenarios about the near future for months or seasons or a few years out to a few decades. And that information, we can utilize it to be able to make plans for what the future holds. These are based in physics. They're based on laws of physics. We have some understanding of what the future holds. And we can take that, harness it, um, and use it um, to be able to plan for that. And so it, I think some people get a little bit, they find it a little daunting to think about the future. And the future is changing. You have to do something. Um, but here, this is actually the knowledge is power. We can figure out what to do. We can plan for it. Um, and climate change will affect everyone's daily life, but in different ways. Like for me, growing up um, in parts of the Midwest, like there's changes in farming communities that I came, grew up in, in terms of what you can plant and when and um, drought resistance and issues. Um, in other parts of the country, like in the American West, there's been a drought that's been expanding that is now the worst in 1,200 uh, years. And so different parts of the country are going to be affected in different ways. Um, but no matter where you live, you will be touched by climate change. And so we have the information now to make plans and to deal with it. And so we should use it. Well said. Dr. Kavnick, I want to thank you for joining us here on the Disaster Discussions podcast, our very first guest and it's been quite a thrill. We thank you so much for being with us. Thank you so much for having me. 
Thanks for listening to the Disaster Discussions Podcast, an IBHS production. Subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcast app or watch the podcast on our website at ibhs.org slash disaster discussions podcast and the Insurance Institute for Business and Home Safety YouTube channel. Connect with us on our social media pages on Twitter at Disaster Safety, Facebook at facebook.com slash disaster safety and on Instagram at IBHS underscore org. For more great content from IBHS, including ongoing research efforts happening at our facility, episodes of our podcast, and more, visit IBHS.org.